In 1 John 2, beginning at verse 3, John writes under the leading of the Holy Spirit, and he says, By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he, Jesus, walked. My plan was to do a review next week. I don't know how I feel about those review Sundays landing on the same day as Lord's Supper every time, so I might have to like stutter step here to offset that, but we'll just see how far we get this morning. But if you missed the last couple of weeks, you can catch up online or wait for that eventual uh, teaching morning. The first thing I want to point out to you is that it is, it is nowhere said in scripture that people who know Jesus Christ by faith and really, really believe in him. Nowhere does it say in scripture that they never struggle with assurance of that faith. I want to point out to you that it's not only a normal thing, um, it's sometimes a besetting reality that somebody who had at least a moment in their life where they apprehended the truth of the gospel by faith and, and, you know, however you needed to phrase it at the time, gave your heart to Jesus or received him as Lord and Savior or confessed your sins and believed you were forgiven. You might have a, a, a time you can remember where that happened and the, the, the time immediately after where you were just filled with this strong sense of conviction and faith that something had changed in your life forever. And then you can wind up later on down the road in a moment feeling like maybe that was, maybe that was your imagination. Maybe that didn't happen. And this can happen for all kinds of reasons, things that happen to you, things that you participate in that draw your heart away and your affections and your attentions get divided. Um, it, it, you can find yourself just going through the motions of church life and, and even reading your Bible and getting nothing from it just because, like I prayed a few minutes ago, the spirit's willing but the flesh is weak. Um, you can be in some besetting sin, and then, of course, you lose your sense of assurance of faith. Um, you can be going through a great trial in life and feel like, even though what's happening to you is not a reflection of the heart of God towards you, you can feel like it is and become convinced in your own mind that what's happening to you when it's bad is happening to you because of judgment, because God doesn't love you anymore. And I just want you to know that it's normal. We might be greatly helped by reading very carefully verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. It is not how we come to know him. It is how we know we have come to know him. The keeping of commandments 
is not the means by which we come to know God. Keeping of commandments is the means of your assurance of your salvation. And it's not the only one. It is one. So let's scooch around a little bit in the scriptures. We'll start in John chapter 10. I'm going to ask you to turn there. We'll go to John 10. Um, we'll look at a verse there. We'll go to Hebrews uh, 12. We'll go to Philippians 1. And what I would ask you to do is we look at these three passages is think about the theme, the idea that's being communicated by all three of these. In John 10, find verse 28. This is Jesus talking, right? I give them eternal life. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Who gives eternal life? It should be easy because I said it's Jesus talking and then he says, I give them eternal life. So let's try it again. Who gives eternal life? All right. And can you have eternal life temporarily? No, they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I was, I mean, this might seem like a waste of time for me to say this out loud, but I assure you when it occurred to me, it was an aha moment that was revolutionary. I read, no one will snatch them out of my hand and thought many times after reading it, good to know. No one else can snatch me out of Jesus' hand. And it wasn't until I had been professing Christian for quite a few years that I realized no one includes me. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Look at Philippians 1, verse 6. All good Southern Baptists know this verse, right? I am sure of this, or I'm convinced of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Real quick, who is it that gives eternal life? All right. So who is it that began the good work in you? Okay. And what this verse tells us is he will bring it to completion at the absolute latest, the moment that you meet him face to face. Whether that's because you pass out of this life into the next, meaning you die, or because he returns and you're one of those that's carried up into glory. Hebrews 12, 28. This is towards the back. Of the New Testament. Hebrews 12. Twenty-eight. Hebrews 12. Twenty-eight says. Therefore. <clears throat> which means a whole bunch of truth. Preceded this verse. But we just don't have time. Right. Therefore. Let us be grateful. For receiving a kingdom 
that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Let's be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Not conquering a kingdom, not taking a kingdom, not letting a kingdom into your heart, but receiving from Jesus Christ, who gives eternal life, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. No one can snatch you out of his hand once you are in it, including you. So those truths, here's what I, what I want to establish. Those truths are the foundation of assurance. Not salvation, assurance. This idea that salvation does not come first from your actions ought to afford you a little bit of comfort. It's his promise. He says it. He promises to finish the work. And he says, let's be grateful we've received it, right? That's the foundation of assurance. Do not expect assurance of salvation to come first from your actions. That's not going to happen. So 1 John 2, 3 said, By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Everything I just said should tell you, like just thinking logically, right? The truth of 1 John 2, 3 must be built upon the foundation of the truth of John 10, 28. Philippians 1.6, Hebrews 12.28. Got to hold these things in the proper order. So let's talk about commandment keeping. 1 Samuel chapter 15. I don't want to assume that everything that I think is a well-known story in the scriptures is actually a well-known story in the scriptures, but we also have a limited amount of time. So I'm going to read as much of this as I, as I feel like I have to to set the table. But let me say this. If, if we started in Genesis with the call of Abraham... Um, who's the, you know, the so-called father of the people of God. And you go, all right, Abraham had kids who had kids who had kids who ended up in Egypt, who became slaves, who eventually Moses led out of slavery to the promised land. And then there was this period where Joshua ran the show. And then there were these judges for a while that ran the show. And what you have is a couple hundred years of the people existing on the periphery of the promised land, <coughs> excuse me, and never actually going in and taking it. And then you have them observing the kingdoms around them and noticing that all of these kingdoms have a king. And boy, things would be better if we also had a king. And so they cry out to God for a king, just as God has brought into existence for like the first time ever, this prophet who's going to hold this office where he's going to lead the people of God named Samuel. Um, the people cry out for a king. They reject 
Samuel, the prophet, in preference for a six foot nine fellow who's, you know, ripped and got great hair and chiseled jawline and make him king. And God warns them when they cry out for a king, he tells them, you want a king, you're going to get a king. But here's what's going to happen. You are not going to like it. You're not going to like it. He's going to end up being a real piece of work, and you're going to be sorry you ever asked for it. So are you sure? And they were like, yeah, we're sure. We would know. And so they get Saul. Saul gets a mission. 1 Samuel 15, 1. Samuel, the prophet, said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I've noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Don't spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And everybody that's an atheist that doesn't believe the Bible all of a sudden clings to verse 3 and goes, See, how could you believe in a God that kills kids? We don't have time. Um, verse 4. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them at Teleim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. And then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart. Go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. Understand that the Amalekites were the type of people who would harass you as you're fleeing slavery. So if you just want to uh, rewind back to the late 1800s, like mid to late 1800s, when they had the Underground Railroad, y'all remember this? Slaves would flee from, you know, daily beatings and having salt rubbed in their wounds and um, having their wives raped and taken from them. And there were people that would uh, hunt those slaves down and kill them. What would you do to those people? with your self-righteous indignation about God ordering the death of man, woman, and child among the Amalekites. These were people who uh, had a statue with hands made out of bronze, and it had a brazier underneath it, which could be heated up to a couple thousand degrees. Periodically, they would lay their own children on it in order to appease their God, Molech. So let's not be too self-righteous. When God brings... Wrath, it is often a sign of his mercy. He's bringing an end to evil. And he's trying, not that God, you know, this is anthropomorphic language, but he's trying to involve Saul in the execution of his judgment against evil. Verse 7, Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. And devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I've made Saul king. For he's turned his back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Understand. It's really important what I told you before we started reading this. And you should go back and read it for yourself. 1 Samuel 1 through 15. To see that what I'm saying is true. God warned them. You're not going to like the king that you get. 
And the fact is, David was only better than Saul in that he was a man after God's own heart. But he did his share of harm and murdering. He wasn't like um, a way better man than Saul. So when in 1 Samuel 15, 11, it says the Lord regretted that he made Saul king, this too is anthropomorphic language. This is us ascribing human characteristics to God that we might understand him. But don't forget, God said at the outset, it's not going to be good. And this is just confirmation that he was right. It's not like God's surprised. Oh, what? Saul didn't know what? He's not a good man? That's crazy. Thought I could pick him, but I guess not. No, he knew. He's turned his back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry for a multitude of reasons. Probably because Samuel kind of liked Saul. If you look at what happened leading up to this, it's not unreasonable to conclude that. Probably because Samuel was hoping maybe God could be proven wrong. Maybe this would be a good king and a good thing for the people of Israel. And probably not least of all, because nobody who uh, is actually in the seat of power uh, and, and handling it correctly actually wants it. Right? So Samuel's like, thank God Saul's here. I don't have to. But now the Lord is, is regretting making Saul king. So he's angry and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. Crazy, right? How people do that. Um, I don't do that every time I have a minor success. <laughs> set up a m monument in my own heart. Oh, yeah, wait, yes, I do. Uh, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed and went down to Gilgal. Samuel found Saul, and, and Saul said to him, uh, look at the church language, right? Now it's Sunday. Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Has he? What did God say? Kill everyone and everything. And don't, don't be duped either. Saul didn't preserve Agag because he's so merciful. I performed the commandment of the Lord, and Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? I love it when people in Scripture are sarcastic with one another. Saul said, uh, We brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen. And you can watch him thinking this through as he says it, right? We spared the best of the sheep and the oxen. Ah, to sacrifice them to the Lord. Your God. And the rest we've devoted to destruction. And then Samuel said to Saul, stop, stop. I'll tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And Saul said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. And I brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, and the best things devoted to destruction. 
sorry, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Samuel said, as the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. So verse 20, if you just move your eyeballs back up there. Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. And I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. 1 John 2, 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. So saying it, like Saul does in 1 Samuel 15, 20, saying it doesn't make it true. It might just make you a liar. Saying I know him doesn't make it true. It might just make you a liar. Saying I do keep his commandments doesn't make it true. It might just make you a liar. So look at Matthew 7, 21. Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, this is Jesus talking. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, the day of judgment, that's what he's talking about. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Saying it, I know him, does not make it true. It might just make you a liar. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments as a liar and the truth is not in him. So then you look at uh, Matthew 7, 21, and I recognize for many of us, this is a verse that was used as a cudgel to beat us with and frighten us. But the reality is that what Jesus is illuminating, shining light on with what he says is the profound love that he has for sinners. Because the emphasis, the emphatic part of this passage that he that he that he says is that which has everything to do with relationship. Many, many on that day will say to me, Lord, Lord, and I will say, depart from me, I never knew you. It's not, right, here's the other sermon from this passage, right? 
Nothing you do is good enough. That's the other sermon. These people were casting out demons. Have you done that? And we all go, if, unless we're charismatic, we all go, nope. So you make your list of things that you've done for Jesus. And the sermon goes, none of that is good enough. What's the problem? What was missing? We've healed people. We've cast out demons. We've given sight to the blind. We've converted people to the gospel. We've filled the church. What's the problem? I didn't know you. That's the problem. What's the difference between Saul and his failure to keep the commandment that God gave him by doing something kind of magnanimous and sparing people rather than killing him from a human perspective, right? What's the difference between him and David, who also didn't keep the commandment, slept with his neighbor's wife, had his neighbor killed so that he could be with his neighbor's wife and cover up his transgression? What's the difference? Is one thing worse than the other? I mean, if anything, we'd go, like, David was pretty gangster, and I don't know where to file that in my repository of evil things. Because I'm assuming if David walked in here right now and applied to be one of our deacons, the elders would have some questions. It would be like, I don't, well, David, we don't know. Why don't you, why don't you just attend for a while while we keep an eye on you? What's the difference? David knew God repented of his sin, and so was redeemed. Saul says, no, 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 Samuel, don't take the kingdom away from me. Pray to the Lord your God that I not lose my status, that I not lose all these blessings that accompany being king. David prayed after he knew that the child was going to die, that was the result of his adultery, David prayed and said, take not your Holy Spirit from me. That's the difference. So Jesus says to these people, depart from me. I never knew you. Workers of iniquity. And then he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So 1 John 2, verse 5, the first half of verse 5. Whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. So commandment, word, keeping equals assurance of faith Right? Commandment keeping equals assurance of faith. It contributes to you being assured that you are a child of God when you do what God said. Right? That equals, so commandment keeping equals assurance equals uh, love of God is perfected. Now, here's what we've got to do. We've got to figure out what that means. Love of God is perfected. Um, it certainly can't mean that Apart from us keeping his commandments, God's love is somehow insufficient. We don't change the love of God. Okay? 
in agreement? Because there are some commentators who were like, that's exactly what it means. And I'm like, glad I didn't go to seminary. Um, and now you know why I love sarcasm in the Bible. We already knew, James. Um, so he, he, he says, your love for God is fulfilled, accomplished, brought forth, displayed, brought to its end. Your love for God reaches maturity when you keep his word. So commandment, word keeping equals assurance of faith equals love of God perfected, love for God perfected, which means that if the foundation of the assurance of your faith, the thing that we're building on, salvation's under that, right? Salvation. Foundation of assurance is Jesus gives eternal life and he says, no one can snatch you out of my hand. What we're going to do is we're going to build on that foundation of his promise. We're going to add to that us keeping his word brings to maturity our love for God. What that means is, the thief on the cross, who's in the last moments, hours at least, of his life, says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. Whatever else happened in that man's heart and in that man's mind, he didn't have a lot of time for his love for Jesus to be perfected, right? It was limited. But what do we see? We see the other thief popping off. And then this thief goes, whoa, 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 whoa. We deserve to be up here. This man hasn't done anything wrong. I realize he couldn't point. This man hasn't done anything wrong. Right? Oops. Your love for God is fulfilled, accomplished, brought forth, displayed, brought to maturity, brought to its end when you keep his word. So that thief on the cross in those brief moments kept God's commandment by honoring Jesus Christ. And that's pretty much, I think, all it really takes. Now, I mentioned earlier, you might have besetting sin. And so let me point out that what we see happen to Saul in 1 Samuel should serve as a warning. Saul did not want to be in relationship with God. God, it's not that God was miserly with Saul. It's that Saul didn't, he didn't care. He's like, whatever, I don't, it's your God. That's not my God. I don't want to be in relationship with God. And that's indicated by those continual referrals to your God rather than my God. The one thing you consistently see from Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation is that when people repent, God relents judgment and wrath. From the beginning all the way to the end, that's true. When people repent, God forgives them. So the foundation of that repentance that we see David engage in, that we see the thief on the cross engage in, that you yourself will engage in, the foundation of that repentance is not fear, it is relationship. Depart from me, workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Saul says, oh, pray to the Lord, your God, who he doesn't know. 
Now let's walk it back. How are you going to keep commandments? What do you have to have already in your arsenal if you were going to walk as Jesus walked? You got to have Jesus. You got to be in relationship with him. Because mark my words, if you're not in relationship with your heavenly father through faith in Jesus Christ, and you did manage to keep most of the commandments, you would find yourself standing in a crowd of people going, Lord, Lord, on judgment day. And Jesus would turn his face towards you and say, depart from me. And you would look at the treasure trove of commandment keeping that you did. And then you'll look at James and you'll be like, that guy was a jerk. And I'll be going, I know. But I loved him. I knew him. So I'm going home. That's where your assurance comes from. In John 14, verse 15, Jesus says, if you love me, You'll keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot see, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I won't leave you as orphans. Do you hear it? It's about relationship. It's about the nearness of God. Why does he send his spirit to indwell us? Why does he do that? Because I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'll be near you. I'll be in you. And that day you will know that I am in my father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. The revelation of the person Jesus Christ to your mind and heart does not come from you keeping the commandments. It is the basis upon which you can even begin to keep one commandment. You've got to be in relationship with him. Judas not Iscariot, so not the Judas that eventually betrays Jesus, but the other one says, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Jesus is beating the drum of relationship. And this can be seen, I think, really easily in human relationships. If I um, find a stranger at the store and, you know, pretend my kids are still young, three, four years old, And, uh, you know, sometimes you tell your three, four-year-old to do something difficult that requires them to trust you and love you and assume that what you're asking them to do will have a good outcome, right? Quit pooping your pants. Do this instead. And they're like, seems like a waste of time because I can just... But you work with them diligently. And because they love you, they begin to learn how to do the new thing. Start 
cutting up your own food. Here's a knife. Knives are dangerous. Well, I'm not cutting up your food anymore. You need to learn how to do it. And so they do. They figure it out. Partly because they want to, but partly because they trust you, right? So imagine a scenario where you're at the store with your three, four-year-old and, uh, uh, and then there's a stranger there with you and, and y- the stranger tells your three-year-old to do something difficult. Your three-year-old's going to be like hiding behind you, right? Because there's no relationship there. But if you tell them to do the same thing, because they love you and they've, they've learned to trust you, they'll do it. They'll at least try to do it. Used to watch parents chuck their kids into the water during swim lessons. And they got the arm floaties on, so they're going to be okay. But these are like little kids. And we're all out there trying to oh, paddle, paddle. And the parents, like, just chuck them in. That's what you got to do. And the kids don't, like, not talk to mom for the rest of the week after that because they know mom's, mom's not against me. She's for me. And I want to do this hard thing. Because the relationship is there. So look, listen, look, listen. You're not going to do anything that this book tells you to do. You're not going to do one stitch of this in a meaningful and real way unless you first have a relationship that's meaningful and real with God. Commandment keeping means walking as Jesus walked. How did Jesus walk? 40 days and nights in the desert. How do you walk? In fellowship with his father. When he goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration, what do we see? We see this miraculous display of the communion that Jesus had with his father. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. When he comes down and they bring the demon, after he comes down off the Mount of Transfiguration, they bring the demon and the guy's like, ah, Your disciples tried to cast it out and they failed. And Jesus is like, "Ah, how long do I have to be with this unbelieving people? And he casts the demon out and then he tells them this kind will only come out through prayer. What were they doing before that? In the name of James, come out. That doesn't work. What worked? Jesus in communion with the Father constantly in communion with the Father, speaks and out comes the demon. How did Jesus walk? In relationship with God the Father. We see it in the garden, right? At Gethsemane. He tells the disciples, do me a favor, hang out right here and pray. I'm going to go a little further in. And what does Jesus do? He goes and he sweats, as it were, great drops of blood. And he prays and he asks his father, if it be your will, let this cup pass, but not as I will. Your will be done. And he gets up and he comes out. What are the disciples doing? They're sleeping. And he he tells them, look, hey guys, you know, the spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. Pray because you're going to need it. What are they going to need in the next few hours that they don't have if they just sleep right now? They're going to need to be in communion with God the Father. Then what do we see happen on the cross after Jesus has been nailed to it and it's been raised up and dropped in its hole and they're all mocking him as he hangs there naked. There is this moment 
And I don't know exactly how to explain it. I can't begin to explain it. Where something in the fabric of the relationship between Jesus and his Father in heaven is changed because he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the next thing he says, that's it. It's finished. When he was separated from that fellowship with his father because he became sin on your behalf and my behalf, our redemption was accomplished. Why, why, why would you want to go through life separated from God when Jesus went through that to put you in relationship with him? And why should you have any assurance of your faith if that relationship with God is not moving you to take at least baby steps in obedience to this, what did Jesus do consistently the whole time he was on earth? He walked in relationship with God. That's commandment keeping. So we got to go back, right? We got to rewind a little bit to 1 John 1, 9. Because all of us are sitting here going, I went hours at least this week without giving a thought to God. Swallowed multiple mouthfuls of food without choking and dying. Had breath every time I tried to get one without a thought to God. So we got to go back to 1 John 1, 9 and remember, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What do I have to do now? Every time I realize, oh, I look back and I'm like, oh, there's the trail over there. And here I am off of it because I've drifted. I've wandered. I got to confess. And the most beautiful thing happens, right? You turn to confess and there he is. Right there. You don't have to run back. And earn his presence. You turn, you go, um, I blew it. And there he is. He's right there. Faithful and righteously forgiving you and cleansing you from all unrighteousness. Assurance flows from the relationship. Obedience flows from the relationship. Your most besetting sin is not first an indication of a lack of obedience on your part. Your most besetting sin is an indication of your need for a relationship. Know him. That's the invitation of the gospel. Amen? All right, let's pray.